Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, I have my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm hanging in there. It's really nice to talk to you and see you again. It is indeed, and um, yeah, it's uh, been quite busy, hasn't it? Just in terms of pod uh, content getting out in the in the last few weeks. I mean, yeah, it's funny how it sort of panned out. We we sort of I feel like we had a kind of relaxed start to the season and then suddenly they're just you know the episodes are coming thick and fast yeah one of those things where as always i think we're like yeah we'll do an episode on this an episode on that and then we just end up taping so much stuff that we want to get it out and uh yeah there's there's so much more just waiting to to come out as well which is really exciting um and uh a note before we recorded was like we are we are aware that we're kind of really close to the hundredth episode now so um we're hitting a, a kind of milestone that we'll, we'll want to celebrate as well so it's kind of thinking about how we're going to mark that very very soon as well which is really exciting yeah it's uh, discussions to come on about that i mean it's funny isn't it because it's like we've been going what not four years now something like Maybe that four yeah. years yeah four years in february probably when we'll hit 100 mark yeah. and, indeed and it doesn't feel like you know obviously that there are podcasters who put out so much content weekly content you know even twice a week and now you've got the 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 daily and stuff you know these big organizations putting stuff out every single day and it's like there's not really that many episodes but i think you know the way that we do it with our the depth and breadth of our content and how long our shows are and they often need quite a bit of organization to put them together it's yeah it's uh it's, it's a different approach i suppose to podcasting but one one that, that actually think suits us quite well really yeah i think it's been uh yeah kind of productive and and kind of profitable if that's the right word but not in a kind of financial sense in terms yeah. of the way we've approached it certainly because it's it's not our it's not our day job so no. it's not our main concern so yeah very proud of what we've what we've put out there so far and looking forward to to what's next so you, you're well you've been okay uh yeah yeah not too bad i'm i'm um, just trying to come to the end of the academic year clearing the desk I've got this just one big article to to finish off now, which I should be able to do by the end of the end of the week. And if I can literally get that sent, then it's one of the, it's that thing that's weighing on your shoulders where it's been around, it's been too long, and I haven't had time to really focus on it. And switching between sort of course leadership, academic duties, and then back into a sort of creative space of writing, it takes me a couple of days to do that. I find it difficult to switch in and out. Um, so hopefully that will be done. But um, watching a lot of films just to catch up on scene seen everything that i think i need to see i mean there's a few blind spots there's stuff like pain and glory which i never i didn't i didn't see which i really wanted to see yeah same um and and then you know i think is is parasite coming out next year in the uk yeah it yeah, previews so that, this week but it's yeah, not yeah. out till february i think so 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 that's not a film and also the the, the other one there's a couple of us like the lighthouse which i saw at london film festival and portrait of a lady on fire are films that probably will f- maybe feature next year in our yeah. in our list you you would if if they're going to feature at all but we're not going to count those as as this year but yeah all good though good stuff yeah i've been doing the same so i've been catching up some of those things that have drifted under the radar that are available on streaming platforms uh, or online I, I managed to pick up alex ross perry's her smell for 199 on itunes to buy oh, wow. it i was like wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know i didn't even know it'd been digitally released uh, in the uk so that was uh, yeah, that was a bargain. Um, and yeah, just I've been playing through the Netflix releases like Marriage Story and uh, Atlantics and things like that. So feeling pretty good shape to have a discussion of some of the kind of the main talking points of the year, which we'll be doing when we see each other face to face later this week.
Yeah, indeed. And uh, I think it's going to be a bumper episode because there's quite a lot to talk about. But before all of that, we have got a special two-parter coming up now, which you have spent quite a bit of uh, time and, and effort uh, putting together. Um, so yeah, why don't you just give us a give us a sort of summary of what, what, what we've got coming up? Yeah, so this is the BFI Musicals episode that we've been long uh, mentioning and it's the the first of our official partnership with the BFI national seasons uh, the blockbuster seasons after doing our, our comedy genius sort of triptych uh, in the last season but this is the first time that we've kind of gone out into a season knowing that we were going to kind of deliver an episode in partnership with that season so it's been yeah a kind of a time of working out what the episodes were going to be or the, the episode and uh, and then realizing that we had the opportunity to talk to so many interesting people that uh, and do and go to a really really good screening that it was worth spreading it into into a two parter which is, goes back to what we were saying at the start you know kind of thinking oh yeah we'll just do one and then just the opportunities that are afforded mean that uh, we're going to do two so the first one is a kind of general BFI musicals episode where we'll talk about our kind of interest in and kind of relationship to the genre and then we've got three interviews with uh, a variety of different people one from a critic Pamela Hutchison who I talked to at the BFI in late October, and then the screenwriter Tom McRae, who's adapting his own West End stage hit, uh, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, for The Screen, which comes out in uh, next summer, I think. And then I talked to Justine Waddell from Kino Classica, who are a kind of Russian and Soviet cinema programmer and curator and kind of trust, uh, who are doing an amazing season of kind of Russian musicals to coincide with this BFI musical season. So hearing about what they do at Kino Classica and what that season's all about as well. So lots of other people talking about musicals uh, to come in this episode. And then I guess you and I, Dario, at the end, will chat about our own favourites and uh, what we like and don't necessarily like about the genre. Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe maybe as a, as a sort of way into the these interviews. I mean, it's an interesting genre, isn't it, musicals, generally, in the sense of perhaps it has certain connotations that I think a lot of the interviewers pick up on in certain in certain ways. And, you know, whether it's what, what are the audiences for musicals, what actually constitutes a, a, a musical, and where it sits in contemporary film acceptability, let's say, I think is an is an interesting question to to talk about. I mean, but I don't know, what did you what did you think when you first heard that it was musicals that the BFI season was was shaped around, you know what I mean? It could be anything and they've chosen musicals. What do you make of that? One of those things, which is kind of often with these big seasons, which is a both the kind of, oh, that makes sense, but also, you know, what what's left to say, you know, what relevance is it? You know, all those kind of questions of like, why, why, why musicals? You know, it feels like something that's kind of talked about again and again, but then the more that kind of think about it and more talk to people about it you more realize that it's it's a really contentious area of film i mean every area of film is contentious nowadays um <laughs> but uh but just you know just there's there's something about the musical which is which is complicated historically i think and that was really fascinating and also just yeah kind of with these big seasons similar to comedy i think we both had that kind of experience comedy what does in this age of subjectivity what does this mean to me you know how do i feel about this it's something i with a lot of with a lot of films particularly the lot of stuff we cover on the podcast i think it's like oh, i don't necessarily think about that very much those kind of films but then realize that there are certain films within that genre or by a certain filmmaker that really really resonate and i hold really really close and i don't necessarily define it as oh this is a musical it's just this is a film that 
means a lot to me in a, in, in, in a particular way. And then thinking of it as a musical has been really interesting or thinking about certain films that have musical elements or in, or in dialogue with musicals that mean a lot as well was, was something that sort of I thought was really interesting that came out of it. And to then kind of talk to Pamela and think actually, because one of the things when I was preparing for the interview was thinking, oh, we're, we're just, we're just going to be talking about old films because the musicals like the Western, there isn't any. And then obviously I, I say that flippantly because I know that they are still, there are still great Westerns being made, but it's a kind of genre that feels very rooted mm. in a particular time and context in Hollywood. Yet one of the biggest films of the last few years was The Greatest Showman. You know, so it's, it's very, very current. And we're recording this on the day that Cats screens for critics the world over and everyone's mm. eager to see what a kind of disaster or weird triumph that's going to be. So it, 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 they don't go away, you know, um, but they do feel very much part of a, a tradition. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to think of modern musicals in the same way you think of old musicals. And I think we'll talk a lot about that when we talk about Funny Girl, which is the the episode that we're going to be following up this one with, which is the Barbra Streisand starring film from the late 60s. So uh, thanks very much to everyone for uh, taking the time out of their schedules to talk to me. And uh, yeah, it was a real, real fun time to kind of talk about musicals from such a variety of different perspectives. So yeah, let's go now to my chats with Pamela Hutchinson, Tom McRae and Justine Waddell. If Santa Claus brings me any toys, I'm taking them with me. I'm taking all my dolls, the dead ones too. I'm taking everything. Of course you are. I'll help you pack them myself. You don't have to leave anything behind. Except your snow people, of course. <laughs> We'd look pretty silly trying to get them on the train, wouldn't we? Soon 
actually said to me, um, you put Singing in the Rain in your top ten greatest films of all time for Sight and Sound. Did you really mean it? And okay. I was like, wow, I adore that film, and who doesn't? Right? Yeah. I thought it was on everyone else's list, I just didn't bother looking. <laughs> Is it a film you think has gone out of fashion, then? I, I think it's come into fashion. I, I think yeah, it's I even know. more popular than ever, because it's actually one of the few classic musicals that's on TV that's sort of quoted in the gift quite a lot. I think it's a very good film. I didn't... I think... I didn't think it was a controversial opinion. No. Very few <laughs> people thought that I only, you know, watched, you know, car theatre drive films or something. But that's not me. You're not a fan of drive. Well, no, I just mean it's not that oh, I only drive. watch oh, serious things. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Um, and I think musicals are serious. Yeah, that was one of my... Well, one of the questions that I wanted to sort of to get into. Um, you sort of mentioned there that you've been... Um, talking a lot about musicals um it feels like you're kind of everywhere kind of sort of you know cheerleading for the musical um which is really exciting you know um and, and probably something that you know like you sort of say that she's addressing people's perception of you as just someone who writes about silent cinema um but uh, yeah so is it is it purely kind of your love that has got you out kind of just you know beating the uh beating the the drum um you know. I, I didn't have a very kind of like cinephile introduction to film you know I wasn't someone who went to the cinema quite a lot when I was young you know I didn't read about film being serious so my introduction to film was just watching things on tv that seemed to me to be pleasurable really um and you know when I got into silent cinema that was almost quite an academic thing I sort of thought this was an interesting area mm. to work on or just to find out more about I wasn't thinking of it at work obviously I was a teenager Musicals I've just always loved, and I know that people don't like musicals. In my head, I know that, but I'm always baffled when I meet someone who's resistant to their power because I just think that they're um, so emotional, so clever, so spectacular. Pure cinema, I must have read that somewhere at an impressionable age, and also I think that they can be serious and complicated, and I think that they can be experimental as well. I, I don't really understand how you can discount them from the history of cinema, but obviously I'm very biased. Uh, which is great. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it, 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 they've never been cool. Yeah, I suppose I cool isn't of, something that I worry about. But, no, yeah. but I think that's it's it's it seems similar to the melodrama in the sense mm. that you know, obviously that a lot of female stars in musicals, um, although you know. Probably an equal amount of male stars, particularly in the kind of the golden age, yeah. and those double acts were so key. Yeah. Um, but definitely a sense that maybe it's a kind of it's a genre for women because it's emotional, and, which you know. It's pretty. It's actually yeah. pretty, which is a perfectly good word to use about film. I think, yeah, yeah. and they can be pretty. They can be beautiful, and they can be stunning and abstract. But they can often be very, very pretty. Um, when I was first getting into film, I know that there was a set of films that were cool. People talk about the canon as if it's mm. something oppressive. There were cool films, and to me, they were mostly films from the 1970s that were very violent. And, you know, I liked a lot of these films, but I kept finding that they weren't giving me what I loved about cinema. And I think I realised quite early on that cool was not a factor that was going to, you know, drive my love of film. Um, I can watch certain scenes in musicals endlessly and get a lot of pleasure from them in the same way that I can silent cinema. Um, if anyone thinks that they're more of a feminine genre, I, maybe that's a valid point of view, but you know that there's, you know, the current cinema audience is, what, 52% female? So bring it on. Yeah, and that's probably a historical trend, which is, which is true. Um, th and this idea that it's a feminine genre has always kind of struck me as weird when you see people like Vincenti Minnelli working in musical 
and also working in films like Sun Came Running, you know, mm-hmm. it, to me it's not, I've never seen it that way, but it's, it, it feels like such a shallow, mm-hmm. shallow way of looking at it. Um, and singing in the rain's an interesting one. You, you said sort of before that someone had, you know, it, that felt like a film which has always been classed as serious, and mm-hmm. because it's about movies, it's one yeah. of those classic kind of films about films. Um, and I guess also because it's got capsule moments, and that's what I love about musicals is those kind of pop song, almost like music videos that can be extracted. Yeah. So the singing in the rain sequence almost feels like you could lift it out. Um, which I was wondering, like, do you feel like that, you know, what is it about musicals now that kind of still resonates? Is it almost the memeability of certain things or you know is it something deeper that has kind of brought audiences not back to it but, but certainly kind of allowed a focus like this season would be a fire running to be really accessible and people kind of clamoring f- for it i mean uh, the musicals like the western in that it never really seems to go away but it comes back a lot ah the return of the western ah the return of the musical and i think that you're completely right when you talk about social media because uh, you know there's a perfect way to enjoy three seconds of joy and it's to go on YouTube and type in the name of classic musical and you can get, you know, the barn raising sequence from Seven Brides to Seven Brothers and you'll be happy. You can have, you know, um, anything from Singing in the Rain, anything from Cabaret, all of these wonderful numbers and they are suited to that, that you can share them, you can show people. I follow a wonderful Twitter account called Dancer on Film which has gifts and videos of just the dance sequences from film and it's so fun and expressive compared to the majority of film, which is, you know, the Hitchcock thing about photographs of people talking. And I think that also a good musical does have room for a lot of depth, a lot of emotional depth. When you think about a song, I know that some people are are resistant to the moment that the song begins and therefore they think that what they're about to see is all surface. But if you think about it in a good film, and I might get attacked for saying this, uh, in a good musical film, a song, a song and dance number can be like a Shakespearean soliloquy, you know, because you, you've got someone addressing the audience and getting into the complications of why they feel the way they feel, how they change their mind, how they justify their actions, how they're going to carry on in future, and it can be really powerful. So these films don't just show you, you know, I hate it when people reduce the plots of things, you know, basically this is a film about a man who falls in love with the wrong woman. You know, even though the film might have a simple plot, it explores that plot, and of course that means that it's quite a character-led genre as well. And, you know, I'm one of those people that just loves to see people perform well. You know, I recently saw the film Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach, and that's a very emotional film. You just basically watch people acting really well. And you get that kind of joy in a musical too. You get to watch people dancing and singing really well. Okay, sometimes the singing is bad, and sometimes the singing is dubbed, and sometimes the dancing's not very good, but most of the time the dancing is just mesmerizing yeah. right you know if you're talking about the classic era yeah i was going to talk i want to talk a little bit about that mm. that in a bit um but just on that note of the, the kind of the complexities um this idea yeah there is this kind of naive idea that, that musicals are shallow because it's mm-hmm. just songs and it's just you know it's on it's a kind of a superficial which i, I, I don't agree with then because i just think that's naive because you look at something like singing in the rain which is a really kind of interesting and you wrote about this in your BFI um, piece you just wrote for the BFI about it, yeah. it's kind of telling of a seismic moment in kind of cultural history which is this transition for um, for the studios into a, into a quote unquote sound medium yeah. um, and it, it, it does it does a lot of really kind of fascinating work around that moment in terms of the infrastructure but also the human cost of, yeah. of that you know there's a lot going on and one of my favourites is Meet Me in St Louis which is uh, yeah. you know it's one of the most complex films about family I think that's ever been made and, and the songs are that gateway into 
processing, and again, another seismic shift for a group of people. And, and Judy Garland is amazing at holding the turmoil of yeah. this huge move, you know, this huge kind of geographical and kind of emotional move with, 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 with her singing, which is, so it kind of, it's like, if you really are engaged with this stuff, you can't call it shallow and naive or superficial. No, and I mean, I think it's interesting that you chose two fantastic films, great examples, both of them, and one about a big industrial change and one about a small thing. You know, people often say, you know, you shouldn't worry about these things moving house, but everyone knows that in their own personal life, it's one of the most disruptive and upsetting things um, that can happen to people. It might be a great thing. Um, but Number both... one most stressful thing in the world, that's yeah. what they say. But also, I think, you know, from the point of view of the children, you know, the idea of starting a new school, yeah. there's always one of those things that you sort of hold over a child's terrible terror, but, you know, it can be done. Um, but they're both songs that used um, pre-existing, sorry, they're both musicals that used pre-existing songs as well. You know, like the trolley song. No one has ever sat down and looked at the lyrics of the trolley song and thought, this is the way to get to the heart of the American family and its soul. But somehow the way that they do it means that that song takes on such immense meaning and... It's it's quite strange the sort of after effect of the musical where you find yourself singing these songs and you have the earworm. It doesn't have anything like the emotional impact as it does watching a, a heart struck Judy Garland singing the same song. So you have to go back to the film. Last time I saw Meet Me in St. Louis, I watched it on the big screen. I was very lucky and I was shocked by so much that I'd forgotten mm. was so powerful, including the Halloween sequence, which yeah. is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. You know, this film is not scared of hitting every emotional note that it can, and, uh, but it really makes you believe in them. Um, uh, you know, if you're resistant to the songs, then you're going to miss out on most of the joy and the depth in the musical. Yeah, and it always feels like a genre that has kind of, you know, has, has had that resistance to it, or people have not gone towards it in terms of its own terms and kind of dismissed it, which is such a shame. But I think in t other than the, the songs, like you say, which have been kind of separated from you read in the context a lot. Um, like Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, classic example. People don't think of it as a song to sort of say about something terrible is happening, but yeah. I'm going to look after you. And, and that's why we love yeah. that song, not just because, you know, we want Christmas to hurry up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I think as well, though, you know, a lot of the, the, the films that I love have a real kind of aesthetic kind of connection to, you know, classic Hollywood musicals particularly. It's interesting you're sort of saying about this prettiness, but when I think of Punch Drunk Love, I think mm. of I think of classic Hollywood musicals. When I think of To Die For, yeah. I think of this kind of palette and this tone and this and the the framing as well of like this feels like a Minnelli film in many ways in terms of how these characters are put around. And then obviously something like Bjork's video, it's, it's also quiet. There's so many kind of cultural touchstones which which drift back, which suggests that it's not merely. Uh, a musical influence that it's had, that it's had this kind of wider aesthetic influence. Is that something that you think is, you feel and, and you think is kind of undervalued or am I just no, I think, picking up? I think that's interesting because you can instantly summon up the essence of a musical just with one chorus line. You know, when people suddenly feel that they know what it is, you know, a woman in a floaty dress walking down some steps while the music plays and you know you have a musical and so you can borrow it. I mean, I always remember, you know, just to completely age myself but as a little girl watching the pop video watching the Madonna mm. pop video and saying isn't this amazing and my mother explained to me that it was from a musical called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and she'd done it bit by bit and I remember just thinking that was such a wonderful kind of act of love that she must have really loved the original scene yeah. that she would copy it and that wasn't it wonderful for this you know, very modern person, I thought, of course it's the 80s, um, you know, a very modern new person who was hip and cool and wore lots of bracelets, who she could, she could also wear a pink dress and sort of summon up that kind of style. Because 
I think, I mean, one of the things that maybe helps people devalue the musical is the idea of nostalgia that surrounds it constantly. It's, it's an old-fashioned genre, we seem, but it's always being reinvented and borrowed again to make new things. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, <laughs> I think that that Bjork song, I love Bjork, <laughs> I love it. It's so, so quiet, you know, it doesn't bear more than three listens in many ways, but the video itself is spectacular. Yeah. Taking that, that kind of sort of digital photography and applying it to the musical, it just works wonders. And to have people stepping out into a street, we still have that in new films, like there's that rom-com 500 Days of Summer yeah. where he finally sleeps with her, so everyone starts singing. And, you know, it's somewhere in our brains we know that joy is expressed through the musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah and some of that telling us I hate about you as well. Yeah. On, the, uh, on, the, on the playing field. Um, so uh, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, this idea of, the, the, the kind of what might be naively termed a pure musical or a classic musical, and is there a space for it now? Do you think it's possible to do it? And then I thought, okay, great, a show. Now, mm. am I am I a snob or is there something? Because <laughs> I've not seen it, um, you know. But but that feels like when I was saying, oh, we, you know, that you don't really get those kinds of approaches to a musical anymore. But great, show feels like for better or better, it's doing that. You know, do do you think that? And that's that was amazingly successful. So do you think there's still a place for? The kind of the classic musical, as opposed to something like La La Land, which is, which is very knowing and very you know kind of meta in, in different ways. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of The Greatest Showman. I mean, I love Hugh Jackman and I love Me what too. he's done for the musical. I think that, and even like the cast that he's brought through with The Greatest Showman, the way he's used his heft to sort of support people like Kiala Settle and just to encourage people to enjoy musicals. I mean, one of the things I, I like about The Greatest Showman is, well, I think about The Greatest Showman is that it doesn't stop, it never, it never allows us to sort of stop and take it on board. And so sometimes difficult things happen. This is a film about P.T. Barnum, obviously there's accusations of exploitation you might level at this chap, but the film doesn't want to stop and deal with anything too difficult. So it's more like a montage. And so I, fa- I found myself a little bit frustrated because I thought you have the spectacle and you have the characters and you could really go for something here, but it's a bit too, a bit too superficial for me. It is old-fashioned in many ways, just because they decide to make a film about a musical film about putting on a show and about a cast going together and the difficulties of putting on the show and when you might want to give up, you decide you're actually going to go out there and do it because it means so much to you, which is great. Um, But you can't say that it's entirely old-fashioned because A, it's still such an unfashionable genre that it's quite an affront to people to show this kind of thing. But also, it's not just post Busby Barclay and post Donan and Kelly and post Minnelli, it's post Bollywood, it's post CGI, it's mm. post all the um, Disney extravaganzas which show that you can have a musical film that just is completely untethered from reality and, and goes into all kinds of spaces. And so it has this, um, you know, it's obviously, most importantly, I suppose, post Baz Luhrmann and mm. the red curtain aesthetic and things like M- Moulin Rouge. Yeah. When Moulin Rouge came out, I thought, this is nice, but it's a bit quick. <laughs> and then I saw <laughs> the greatest showman and I thought, oh God, no, it is getting quicker and quicker. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, it, it sort of is old fashioned, but it's just dragging out all those old fashioned things that have retained in cinema. Mm. They're lurking somewhere. If you watch a great Bollywood musical, and I'm not an expert, but the shamelessness with which they just say, oh, we're rehearsing a song right now, or just jump on top of the train and start singing, mm. makes me just think that cinema has a bold future ahead of it. <laughs> um, you mentioned quite a few different uh, moments mm. there. Um, mm. Do you feel like musicals can be broken down into eras as a genre? You know, do, do you see sort of clearly defined things, or is it a fluid... 
this is one of the questions. I knew you'd ask me something like this. And then I have to resist the urge to say, well, yes, of course it can be, because I'm a journalist. You know, like, I'm not an academic, I'm a journalist. So I'm like, yes, let me tell you about the five eras of the musical and I'll break it down and make it really simple. Um, anyone who's really studying film history will say, no, 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 it's so much more complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I recently wrote a, a piece that you referred to that was about how the musical came out of silent film. And in fact, you know, someone asked me recently, oh, is there anything like a musical in silent cinema? And there's lots of things. So you know, the whole thing is very messy. And there is there is a sort of pre-Bosby Barclay era where you have people like um, Ruben Mamoulian and Ernst Lubitsch making musicals. You have, you know, and they go from the sort of variety show format to something a bit more exciting. But then you have something like Hallelujah in there and how, how do you even contend with that? It's just a brilliant thing that sort of came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, then you do have the backstage era, which is great. And you get a bit of pre-code and you get these beautiful Bosby Barclay things. Then we get integration, you know, songs being integrated into the films, and Gene Kelly comes along and makes everything so much more energetic and spectacular. Um, and I've even just missed out a little thing called The Wizard of Oz, which I don't know if anyone saw, anyone listening, niche. not, not ni- very niche film, I think. <laughs> um, we were, you know, and they go on, and then you have Bob Fosse, and then you have all these like postmodern musicals, you know, you have everything from a chorus line to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, where, you know, the idea of a musical is the perfect place to explore divergent sexuality, it turns out. We've decided that this is the place to sit around and talk about our innermost feelings and psychology. And I love that. I love that yeah. so much. Um, so, yeah, a fool would tell you that there are broad um, genres, and I am that fool. Great. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thank <laughs> you for being foolish. Um, about musicals, you have to be a little bit foolish. Indeed. It's, you know, yeah. it's the word we never put on the end of musical, the, the sort of the, the ghost word that's hanging there is musical comedy. Yeah. And uh, they generally are, you know, people generally get married in the end. There's generally a few laughs. Um, I watched the wonderful Fosse Verdon series, and there's a few times where Bob Fosse says, I haven't got time for musical comedies anymore. <laughs> and you think, no, but you do them so well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well, there's that, yeah, another, another genre that's much derided and, uh, come, you know, put, put to side as, as not being serious. Um, it's interesting you say there about Hedwig and Andrew Inch and kind of being a space for an open discussion about sexuality because obviously musicals have kind of have that history of being a space where you know they've they've kind of uh, how to phrase it you know written down. Um, this is one of those things that you have to say very exactly, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there are. Yeah, there are space that there, there, there are films that have been used subversively by audiences that yeah. have kind of taken ownership of them for ways that probably were, well, were not intended to be done. So it's interesting that there is that shift. Um, and that's a big part of the musical as well, isn't it? Which is, you know, the readings of it have, have been a kind of an open space. And I always thought that it kind of mostly open because, you know, serious critics, serious academics have not wanted to go towards it. So it's it's, it is open play for, for other kind of types of audiences, which I think is, and then latterly been, uh, you know, going back in and being reclaimed as kind of serious, but it's always been exciting that it, it's had that space and then has latterly become something like uh, an open an open space for um, dealing with those kind of, that was a massive muddle. Um, no, no, I mean, and I think there are two things going on. And one is, if you're going to have a film which has largely a romantic narrative, and you think these came out of the pre-code era. We've got jazz up your lingerie at one end, and we've got you know, you know, the sobbing women at another. You know, so who knows what's going on? They're delving into sex, basically mm-hmm. delving into romance, 
And I have the opportunity to walk around with that narrative, not just have it as a subplot. So I think, you know, people do find things, you know, people read Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music as queer because of her sort of tomboy nature and her, you know, her resistance to marriage and things like that. You know, people will take things out of films. And, you know, I have no idea where the phrase um, friend of Dorothy comes from, apart from that I know it's to do with The Wizard of Oz, right? Um, and now, obviously, and, you know, there's jokes that I wouldn't make because it's not what I make, but people will say, well, you know, oh, of course I like this film because I'm a gay man, and, you know, there's jokes about musicals all over gay comedy, and I just think, good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that you look at Drag Race and you see people are talking about musical stars a lot, you know, there's a lot of that going on in performance. But then, yeah, as I say, I think, you know, at some point we started making films about, you know, people who are not just heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Films like Cabaret, yeah. obviously, is a really good early example with the homage And then you get into things that are much more explicit. And, you know, I hear that everything, oh, everyone's talking about Jamie is so popular on the West End right now. And you just think, this is where it is now. Teenage drag acts. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, in your, in that, that BFI piece where you're talking about that kind of, how it came up, you mentioned the coconuts. And I thought... <laughs> Finally, someone I can talk to in depth <laughs> about not the coconuts, but the about monkey business. Okay. And the Morris Chevalier sequence. Do you know the sequence at the end where they're trying to get off the boat, which I felt like. It. So the, the I'm a big Morris Chevalier fan, but I haven't seen Monkey Business for a while. So they're all trying to get off the boat, and they've yeah. stolen Morris Chevalier's yeah. passport, and they're playing the record yeah. of a nightingale. Mm-hmm. And it, reading your piece, I was like, it, it felt like that. That I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because obviously. So much of that early comedy that you're talking about has that kind of spirit of vaudeville yeah. and the energy, which comes from being, you know, kind of multidisciplined performers, you know, comedians, actors, singers, dancers, you know, and the Marx Brothers were obviously mm-hmm. this multi-talented group of people. So it was really kind of, it, it kind of joined up a lot of dots of like, well, yeah, that, that felt like the natural progression for these performers. Um, so there's this route from Broadway to Hollywood, and like, obviously, well, not obviously at all, but there used to be studios out in, in um, out on the east coast as well that's where sort of the American film industry was born and so you have literary adaptations and things like that but even bef- even just before the musical kicks in before sound comes in and after these early literary adaptations and all that people are taking people and the spectacle of Broadway and putting it in the films as much as possible if you are a hit on Broadway, whether you're a beautiful dancer like Louise Brooks or whether you're a you know a witty comedian like W.C. Fields, someone's going to try and take you and put you in a film because they want that. People queue up to buy it. And so there's this whole bit where film and Broadway just get so closely aligned and obviously the Marx Brothers were hits on stage. And when they started making films, it, well, they did make humour risk, but that's lost. But when they started making things like The Coconuts and so on, they're just saying, well, let's take one of our reviews because that's what we know to take and I think the people find it a bit hard to watch now that there's set pieces that's confusing to them realism has taken a kind of um, a hold of our brains uh, yeah. you know and it's hard for me to remember that sometimes because I watch so much silent cinema so mm. I watch the stuff when you've got painted sets and then you know and of course the fact that there's not much talking yeah. <laughs> we, did, uh, we did duck soup for the comedy oh, um, which is which is my favourite Marx Brothers but that, mm. when we screened it for an audience and I, I rewatched all of the Paramount really closely, and I was like, I probably should have shown Monkey Business because there's that, there's the plot, there's mm. the story, and Duck Soup has none of that. It's yeah. very much, there's no realism. It's sequence, 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 and you can almost I liken it to like Roadrunner. Yeah. You know, the tracks are being laid by Groucho's ideas and the gangs kind of, and you, you just feel the energy of it coming together. But there's no, there's no narrative that's being, you know, 
but there's a thrill in that for me but I can see why audiences now who are kind of yeah so rooted in realism and a narrative structure will be like what is and they literally were what is going on I mean don't, you know? I don't want to upset you but that moustache is fake what? <laughs> I mean, I recently had the opportunity to write about coconuts in quite some detail. It's one of those things where, you know, anytime you write about the Marx Brothers in general or look at them, no one gives that film any time. And I can understand why in some ways, but there's stuff going on there that's really exciting. And for me, I quite like these difficult points. Um, silent cinema is full of these difficult points where they're trying something and it doesn't quite work, <coughs> you know, or where you see what they're trying to get for, go for, and it does come off but in a really odd way. And so early musicals, and even just a lot of like experiments in the musical form, which we've had a long time, give you so much joy to that kind of cerebral part of my brain that wants to take the film apart bit by bit and see how it's working. Yeah. But that's what's exciting about, you know, about that period that you're right about there, you know, for the musical, because it's, it's where there's no rules of the genre because there is it's not there yet, yeah. you know, and the technology isn't really there. So it's kind of placing together these experimental ideas, and then it becomes sort of standardised by mass, you know, by the amount of films that get made. So yeah, I'm interested as well in those in those things, you know, which is why I love the Marx Brothers because you can see them playing around so much. A um, couple of things before we wrap up. What about Elvis? Okay, so Elvis just like took the musical and made yeah. it his own. I mean, I think that. Because King Creole is one of my favourite films. Okay. And I think it's a great musical as well. I mean, the thing about that is you've just got this star, and yeah. that's the reason why there's music all the time. Um, one of the things that's frustrating about the Elvis Presley musicals is that there are some that are great. I really like Jailhouse Rock mm. and things like that, but obviously there's quite a lot of them. And so you might have seen some of the less good ones. <laughs> it's like there's not so many, you know, there are some, there's a lot of Elvis Presley records out there. But yeah, I think it's really interesting that the musical, just at the time that the studio system was giving up, could take on this star power and become this like massive hit that, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of sensation all over again, fueled by pop music in the way that Singing in the Rain on Meet Me in St. Louis are, mm. but more fueled by this kind of pop star thing. And, and now we agonise about who are the big musical stars now. And, it's hard to think, you know, we always distrust actors who go into it. Mm. So it's, it, it's so easy to put a pop star in a film and let them sing. Yeah. And then we still believe that that's natural. Like it's weird for Hugh Jackman to do it, but it would be completely natural for Beyonce, for example, yeah. in Dreamgirls. And, you know. And those triple threat actors and actresses were kind of, that's, that's what they were. They could sing, they could dance, they could act. You know, yeah. that feels like something that's lost. Um, and La La Land kind of, for me, shows that that, that you know that there is a there is a lack in, in yeah. some of those things. But but Jackman, I love Jackman for that because he feels like a traditional showman, and you know maybe not the best singer. Or but but it, it feels he like there's an energy. He can be a good singer. I mean, yeah. I have heard like you know there are things where he sings well. Like I feel like you know Les Misérables was not a showcase for anyone's skill. Whatever they wanted to do with Les Misérables, they didn't want to show us how how immaculate people could perform. Mm. For example, I think that Anne Hathaway is obviously a very sad song, it's very moving, and partly because, you know, it's so unforgivingly shot, you know. But, yeah, we don't flatter people. If I were a Hollywood actor, I wouldn't go to tap classes. You know, it's just not a thing. Yeah. And in La La Land, I found it quite interesting that there was a certain amateurish that was cute in the main couple. Emma Stone takes off her shoes to dance. She does her big number standing there, you know, with her eyes closed, wearing a jumper, which is very raw and authentic but antithetical to yeah. the musical and yet of course there's so many people in that film who can dance all the extras 
you know, all the all actors, all the dancers, yeah. basically. If you look at the opening sequence, or the sort of, um, I can't remember the name of the song, when the, the girls are getting ready to go out, there's great dancing going mm. on. And, and we think of that as just something that happens in the troupe now. It's almost not something we celebrate a star for. Yeah. She's really weird. Why, yeah. why wouldn't we? Um, even Hugh Jackman doesn't dance that very much. Channing Tatum dances. That's true. And I have to say that his because, um, yeah. No Dame song and Hail Caesar was one of my highlights of the film. Uh, yeah, that's that's a hell of a thing. Um, <laughs> because yeah. it was actually it was a sort of spoof, but it was actually very well done. It sort of did in some way celebrate his skill. Yeah. Um, as well as I think there were a few jokes in it. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, to wrap up, um, any any kind of lesser known gems? You've been on the the podcast circuit. You've been talking about films. <laughs> The podcast. I don't know if there is a podcast circuit, but it's it's much easier than the festival circuit. You don't have to get on so many planes. And um, yeah, lesser known gems in musicals. I would always say that people should watch um, *The Smiling Lieutenant* by Ursula Bitch. I don't think it's lesser known. I just think that it doesn't get rolled out mm. as often as it does. I mean, I always find people who haven't seen things. I like, despite it being antithetical to the genre, I like *Dancer in the Dark*. Okay. I hope that um, gets a few screenings because. I think that it shows that the musical can literally withstand anything, even a really, really melancholic story and, uh, you know, low-rent uh, digital photography and a singer who is a beautiful singer, as I say, I love Bjork, but um, doesn't sing in that trained Hollywood way. Um, what else would I like? Oh, God. Honestly, I'm a bit that person. If it says musical on it, I'll watch it. Uh, I might even watch it twice to make sure I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I want to tell people to go out and just watch Guys and Dolls and they just know they're going to have a great time. But I think that I will be looking out for the musicals that I haven't seen in this season. And I have developed a very strong fondness for anything, basically between 1929 and 1933. So um, Love Me Tonight, watch that for sure. Okay. Um, watch um, Hallelujah, if you ever get a chance, King Vidor's great uh, location shot film. And then you might, for a treat, allow yourself a bit of... Um, top Hat or Gold Diggers of 1933, uh, which suddenly became um, kind of the the juggernaut of big hits, <laughs> the blockbuster musicals in comparison. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. Thank oh, you so much. thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a great circuit. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you, bus boy, come on over here. Lady tells me you sing, that right? Well, I... Uh, uh, better be right, because if it ain't, then the lady is lying. Okay, I'll sing. So what? Nothing. Just want to make sure she was telling the truth, that's all. Hey, Jimmy. Just a minute. I want to make sure you're telling the truth, too. I'd like to hear you. Go on up there and sing a song for me. Now? Yeah, now. Right now. And you better be a singer. Ladies and gentlemen, we, uh, we have a little surprise for you. There's a great new singer here tonight, the busboy. <laughs> no, 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 on the level. A very good friend of Mr. Fields says this guy can really go. So let's all get together and give a real good listen to... What's your name, kid? Caruso. <laughs> Caruso, the busboy. Come on.
for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green-eyed I never looked for trouble, but I never ran. I don't take no orders, no kind of man. I'm only made out flesh, blood, and bone. But if you're gonna start a rumble, don't you try it all the writer Tom McRae and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you Tom thanks for joining us thank you very much for having me so you've got a background in television writing uh, Doctor Who and comedy so let's just start with how you ended up writing a musical in the first place well I, I've always worked in television until really quite recently where I, I've sort of largely transitioned into film which was what I'd always wanted to do in the first place but growing up in the UK and, and living in London for my adult life, there wasn't a lot of film industry that you had access to. So there's lots of American productions that would get you know, made at Pinewood or whatever, but trying to kind of be a movie writer was something that I didn't really know how to crack into and I was really trying to. So I sort of thought if I kept writing better and better TV shows with bigger budgets, then eventually someone would kind of give me a movie. And I was always writing movies on the side, trying to get them away. But the sort of response would always be, we love this, but no one knows who you are. And I kind of got that, you know, politer versions of that as reasons for rejection for sort of years and years and years. And then because I like to generate original work, I don't really do adaptations as a rule. I like to come up with my own stuff or, like with Jamie, take a story which, although it's sort of essentially true, is unknown and has, uh, you know, the, the truth of the story inspired the musical and I took it on all sorts of tangents and invented... 99% of the characters and so on so it, you can kind of make it your own and being a writer the sort of the joy is that if you if you aren't really enjoying what you're working on you can just do something in your spare time for you it's not like you know like an actor 
needs a director and you know all the, all the, the theatre or a film crew and likewise with a director as a writer you can just kind of write something for fun and because I kind of felt like I wasn't entirely satisfied with what I was doing when I through wonderful chance met Dan Gillespie Sells and literally bumped into him in the street one day uh, we became very good friends and, and then we started talking about writing a musical together which kind of made sense because Dan's background and my background added together kind of equals like oh that would be a, that'd be a good musical combo so it was something I was working on for many years, the two of us, really, just for the joy of it. And I, I, I wouldn't complain about my TV career. I was doing, you know, good shows, and I was, I was well paid, and I was largely enjoying it, but it wasn't, it still wasn't what I wanted to do. So having this kind of side project that was exactly what I wanted to do, for a long time, just kind of kept me going. And then suddenly it exploded, and lo and behold, off the back of it, I got the film career I'd always wanted. And if someone had told me, you know, 10 years ago, if you just write a stage show, you'll get a movie. Well, I would have said, first of all, no, that's the wrong way around. Surely you write TV shows to get a movie because TV and film is so similar and theatre and film is so different. Um, but if I listened to them, I would have done it 10 years ago and have been doing movies ever since. But sort of by luck, really, this ended up being the thing that got me into the area I wanted to do. And I love doing television and I'll, I'll always do television, but um, getting to do the kind of big movies now is, is, is my childhood dream. And Jamie got me that and got me a West End musical along the way which also was something I'd always wanted to do yeah I was going to say that's uh that's yeah that's a hell of a of a kind of CV now in terms of the the diversity of uh, of of projects that you've got all kind of you know revolving around the same the same kind of core uh, source of Jamie and um, so yeah. so was um was Jamie envisaged as a as a film first or was it a, was it always going to be a stage musical first I still don't know how to write a play. 
Well, what's interesting, you sort of mentioned before about kind of the normal route to a movie is, you know, a TV show and then a movie. Um, but, you know, the, the, the West End is, 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 is kind of increasingly dominated by uh, stage adaptations of films. So there is a kind of yeah. almost reverse engineering there. Um, so I wonder if that kind of, if, if, if you think that kind of played into sort of Jamie's success in the sense that there is obviously just from the way you're talking about it, a kind of cinematic kind of storytelling heart at, at the, at the center of it. Um, even though it's a play, you know, it feels like just your conception of it in terms of the story, which is something I did want to sort of talk about was yeah, yeah. you think that might've had some kind of reason why, you know, this, this story, um, which isn't a kind of existing intellectual property, uh, kind of became so, so popular. As a stage show, why it became so popular. Yeah. And I, I think we were fighting that. That didn't help us at all because there's a reason why there's lots of movie adaptations and it's because it's existing IP. And to actually do something genuinely original um, is incredibly hard and almost impossible. And it's only because Nika Burns, our West End producer, was prepared to take such a huge risk and take on something that had no branding. We didn't even have any names in it when we opened because we were like, no, we just want to do our show. We don't need to stack it full of celebrities. And you know what? As soon as we stuck in a name, the ticket sales went doubled. Like, yeah. and we just went, oh, right, God, why are we fighting this all along? People actually don't want to watch shows that don't have famous actors in. Why are we fighting our audience? Put in names. You know, we'll still have our fantastic theatre actors who aren't known to a TV audience, but every time you get a TV name in or, a, or a, you know, like an American star, it just makes such a huge difference because we didn't have any branding. Now we've been there for two years, we are our own branding. But trying to build IP from scratch is so hard and people don't take the risk. Yeah. But ultimately, it's the only thing I'm interested in doing. Um, the first ever adaptation I did really was adapting my own screenplay, so my own stage play for the screen for everybody's talking about Jamie, the movie. I've always said no to adaptations. It just doesn't interest me. If I read a novel I love, and I think that was a great book, I'm really happy that book exists. If I love a movie, then I love a movie. I'm not trying to just turn it into something else. And also, I want to have my own ideas. People who write novels are largely expected to have original ideas, unless they're doing like a biopic or something. Um, and many, many theatre writers, not musicals, but playwriters, in the majority, I'd say, are expected to have original ideas. But mm. as soon as you get onto the screen or into the West End expensive musical space, the, an original idea is seen as a bad thing. I mean, genuinely, like writers are discouraged from having them. So to be the one, well, I'm not the only one, but I'm one of the few that I know, who just keeps banging the drum going, you know, I go into meetings at movie studios and they say, we've got a book we want you to adapt. I'm like, no, but I've got an idea I'd like you to make. And I've been lucky enough to have a few of them go. But it is, you have to position yourself to be in a unique space to be able to do that. And I did that by turning down very well-paid work for 20 years to, to keep on just pushing that I wanted to do things that hadn't been seen before. So if I do a TV show, it's because it deserves to be on TV. It's the right shape. It, it's episodic. I want cliffhangers. I want the immediacy of it being your bedroom, oh, sorry, your sitting room and that, that relationship you have with TV. Whereas if it's a novel, which I've not written yet, but I will do it, that's a different experience. People read it on the tube over a period of maybe several weeks or certainly days. And then a movie is, you know, you go out, the lights are dim, you eat the popcorn, it's a whole different experience. And I love that you create things for those spaces, not just take something because someone's heard of it in another space and shove it into a new one. And I'm not being unfair, many adaptations are beautiful and there's adaptations I've absolutely loved and there's probably adaptations I preferred in their adapted form but I just, if you want to do original stuff, it's really hard. And all the credit is goes to Nika Burns mm. because she put her money where her mouth was and actually took on an idea that no one else was actually that interested in and um, turned it into something that everybody was talking about. That's great. Yeah, really, uh, yeah, really good to hear. Thank you. Um, 
So before we move on to kind of a bit more about the process, what was it that drew you to this story in the first place? That you, you know that you knew this was something that you wanted to spend uh, all of this time on and kind of go to bat for and say this is a story that deserves to be on in this space. Well, it was Jonathan, our director, who saw the documentary and then brought the idea to me and Dan. And as soon as we saw it, now there is a saying in the world of musicals that the difference between a, a, the right musical story and the wrong musical story is that some stories just sing. And there's many different ways they can do it. There really isn't a prescriptive formula. But you can tell when it's there. And when we watched Jamie's story, I just thought, oh, I know what these songs are. I know how music takes this and elevates it. Because if you look at the musical, it's actually, it's very text-heavy. It really is a play that then turns into a musical at points. So I'd say it's probably about uh, 75%, 80% dialogue to 20 25% singing, which in most musicals, that would be literally the reverse. Um, it, it would stand on its own as a play. It wouldn't be as good. It would be good, but it wouldn't be as good. But it would stand on its own as a play. But there's moments when the, the, you could never do anything better than have that character open their mouth and sing. And as soon as we saw it, we just, it was just an absolute instinct of going, yes, this is the story. This is something we can all, the three of us from our similar but sometimes slightly different perspectives all had something about it that made us want to tell that story. And it was the easiest thing to write. We, we, we had the whole thing finished in a few months. We had to wait three years to get it on because of theatre politics, but we, we could have got it on stage in six months because we just, it just, absorbed us and, and we just it just kind of fell out of our heads um, and we kind of we pretty much nailed it the first time and I, I probably that'll never happen again and that's certainly what everyone tells me we've been very lucky with how it all came together but it was just such a joy to do you mentioned there about um uh you know the kind of the, it could have been a play um, yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering how you kind of think about story because obviously you're, you've you're very experienced in television, um, and then kind of very aware, obviously you know screenwriting, you know in terms of films and uh, what theatre is. And then you're writing this thing which suddenly has songs in. Um, and I wondered like how how do you approach story when when you're when you're writing a musical? Is it simply you know the story? you know, is its own thing with songs added or is there a kind of specific approach that you have to kind of adopt when you're thinking about how it's all going to flow together and work together? Well, I've only written one musical, so I really don't feel particularly qualified. To but it's a really one. good one, so... I, I can only talk about this one. Yeah. I'd probably, on the next one, I would do it differently and change my mind. Mm. Which is, you know, why not? Like, every project's different. But with this, the trick was to not write a musical. And that was the specific brief... Jonathan, the director, gave us. He said, to me and Dan, write a pop album, and to me, write a screenplay, write a movie. Uh, and that is what I think is fresh about it, is that theatre, if you're not careful, can stagnate quickly. And young audiences can be very turned off by plays and endless Shakespeare. Whereas movies, which are, I can't think of a movie that's ever been subsidised, um, you know, certainly a successful one, they have to hit the kind of the current, this is what now is. The same with TV, the same with pop songs. So all this kind of pop culture has to be, has to be speaking to an audience that is, it wants it. They're not being dragged there on a school trip. They're prepared to, you know, pay their own money, leave their house, go and engage with it. And that pop culture, that's where I, my kind of artistic soul lives. And so we just created something that was within the kind of pop vernacular of film and pop music. And 
and put it on the stage. And so where it feels fresh is just because we're taking stuff that isn't fresh in other worlds, but keeping it on the stage or rather placing it on the stage and making it feel fresh there. So the more we kind of didn't write the musical, the more it became an interesting musical. And the first draft, I just wrote a screenplay and left. Every now and again, I'd say, I think there's a song here. But kept on writing. And then we went through and figured out where you know, dialogue could turn into lyric or where a song could replace something. Or you know, it, it, It's a lot of finessing. But the initial approach was really to just write a movie and write a pop album and let the musical worry about itself. Great. Um, you mentioned uh, Dan a lot there. Um, well, all the way through, obviously, it's clear that it's a very kind of key and uh, strong and positive collaboration. I just wondered, you know, if you could talk a little bit about about what that process is. You, you sort of alluded to it there, I think. You're kind of writing and then highlighting where you think songs and is, is it then handing it over or, or what's that what's that moment like when you're kind of starting to work together on the actual songs themselves? Um, so, well, today when I wrote all the songs together, I did the lyrics and he did the music. So what we tend to do is start with, well, really the idea, that, which, which sounds so obvious, but working out what is the right song in the right place. Like a song on an album can be anything you want, but a song in a musical has to, you've got to say which character is singing it or characters are singing it, uh, which scene is it in where does the talking stop and the singing start where are the audience when the song picks them up and where are the audience in terms of their understanding of the story when it puts them down again is it a happy song a sad song are you referencing a particular musical style and there's all these decisions to make and if you get them wrong you end up with a song that's just there and it might be the most catchy gorgeous song in the world but everyone's kind of waiting for it to finish because they want the story to keep going um, it's like, you know, sometimes if you're watching an action movie and you just start to feel like, oh, God, I'm just tired. Oh, another car chase, another plane crash, because you've lost the characters in it. It's, you know, bad sci-fi becomes about robots and spaceships rather than about you know, humans and questing and ambition and all that kind of stuff. So bad musicals or, or, or musicals which aren't working, probably you can trace back to the fact that when they sat down to think about that song, they stuck in a song because they were like, well, it's the end of the scene. We should put a song there rather than really think about what it is. So if you have that idea and the concept is clear, then the writing is, is that much easier. I mean, sometimes the concept just is so obvious, it pops out your head in, in a second. Other times it took us weeks of rewriting, um, like just trying to shoot completely different songs from scratch to work out what we're trying to say in this moment. Is it a duet? Which characters are singing? Is it happy, sad, you know? And then when you have that idea, whether it's an instant kind of you sit down and have a cup of tea and by the end of it you figured it out, whether it's a process of back and forth over weeks, we would then usually work out what the hook was, lyrically, and then Dan would sometimes literally be sitting there if we were away for a weekend together, or we might have been you know, separate at that point, we'd work out kind of a tune using that hook, and he'd do a la-la-la version and send it to me, and I'd put the lyrics on it, or if I was there, I'd be sort of working on it at the same time. And then sometimes I would then add in, say, like a bridge or have a kind of a particular ending or put in some extra stuff and send it back and say, can you put a tune on this? Two of the songs in the musical started with lyrics. I just wrote them on my own because I just had a kind of flash of inspiration. But all the rest were a very collaborative process. And um, by the end of, well, I mean, we were writing new songs for the movie as well. And at that point, I was living in L.A. and Dan was in London. And so we were just kind of emailing each other because we... We know each other so well now we don't have to literally sit in a room together. But at the start, as we were sort of figuring out that working relationship, we made sure we had lots and lots of contact time. Um, and then you just you just kind of keep on it until eventually you've got your 18, 20 songs, however many it is. Great. There's a, yeah, 
so the reason, obviously, that I, I wanted to talk to you is because we're doing this episode on uh, screen musicals for uh, in partnership with the BFI, and yeah. Jamie is now uh, or is on the ro- on the way to being. I think I think you I think it's kind of uh, probably in post production. Um, yes, yes, we're in post. I'm seeing the uh, the first cut in a few hours actually. Wow. Big screen in Soho. So I'm back in London for a couple of weeks, and we are um, we release on October 23rd next year in the states. Probably um, a little bit sooner in the UK. Great. So, and uh, you sort of mentioned there that you were kind of writing new songs. So I just wonder what, what's it been like to to go back to that material and uh, and kind of live with it again and then also have to work out how how you take that, that's, that, that, that stage show and, um, and that story and kind of rework it for the screen. Well, it, it doesn't feel like going back because it's never stopped since we started writing it. 2013, I've always been writing Jamie in one form or another, because we're getting it on in Sheffield and then transferring to the West End, so I was doing rewrites for that, so I was in the States doing, um, I was a producer and writer on a TV show there, but rewriting Jamie at the same time, and then we opened in London, and at that point we knew the movie was coming, so we were already starting work on how that was going to work, and I did the movie screenplay when we were shooting the movie, um, we started having meetings about the schools edition, which will go out, I think, next year. Um, and so that, that's the next thing I'm working on is the school's edition. I've just done some rewrites for the cast change. I've got a couple of bits from the movie that I like into the stage show. Um, it's always, <laughs> there's always something going on. I mean, it will be, what, we're touring next year uh, internationally. It's not been announced yet, so I won't say, but we are going to, to countries which will require, English-speaking countries, but which will require certain references to be redone so that they translate, um, as well as non-English-speaking countries. Well, I, I have no idea how that process works. I guess someone just translates it and then someone gives me a literal translation and I say if I like it or not, I, that's a whole new thing for me. But it, it, I'm going to be writing it until at least the end of next year. So that will be seven years where I've been writing it at some point every week. Uh, even if it's just a thought while I'm waiting for a bus or full on sitting there typing for hours. So it, 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 revisiting it is not something I've had the pleasure of doing yet. Yeah. I just am like... I'm drowning in it. Mm. I'm really looking forward to not writing Jamie anymore. As much as I love it, I, I would like to just finally have to say we're now finished, but it's, it's still at least two years away before I can say that. Uh, and then towards, I've got distracted. What was your other question about the, the process? Well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll go back to that, but one thing that you raised there is that you know musicals have this kind of, there's this idea that they're kind of capsules of a moment, you know, yeah. and that they almost kind of in amber um, and they don't, and that they don't change. And it's really, really fascinating to hear you talk about how they're constantly evolving. And I think that they're kind of seen as old-fashioned, and they're kind of seen as this thing that's, you know, very, very kind of singular. Um, but you know, the, the reality of it is that they are, you know, massively progressive, intricate, and kind of always evolving, even in, in the most kind of nuanced ways. Which was just really, it was just really fascinating to hear you. He, you kind of go through that process, which I'm sure, from your point of view, is like you say, is is kind of all-consuming and, and arduous at times. But I'm, I'm not sure that's something that people are are kind of aware of, you know. Which so that's really that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how universal an experience that is, and, and no, as I said, point will come in about two years where I can stop writing it. But then, if it, I mean, hopefully, it will just be on in the West End forever, which would be lovely. But if, um, but at that point, I suppose in ten years' time, I'd look at it and say, well, these references are out of date, and although. It's set in 2017 because that's when we opened it. That's just because it's when we opened it. It's not like I was, oh my God, 2017, that was the year. You know, nothing. there's nothing special about that year. I mean, I guess like in a few years' time, we'd have to look at, I mean, 
I suppose we don't really, just for example, you know, exams, GCSEs and a longer ABC, it's now nine, eight, seven, six. They don't reference the actual grade marking system, but there's probably things that would be out of date in a few years and I'd look at. Or if, you know, the show closes and then eventually comes back for 10th anniversary, I'd look at it again just to kind of keep it, because I want it to feel like it's now. Yeah. You know, I don't want, um, you know, jokes that have to be explained with York notes or Cliff notes. Yeah. If it's not funny, then it gets changed. Because uh, it is a funny show as well. Like, you can't, if, if, if a joke has to be explained, it's not a joke. So with that kind of stuff, you have to go back and do it. And then social attitudes in 10 years' time will be so different. And, you know, in like 50 years' time, it will be this weird period piece where people will go, oh, my God, a boy turning up in a dress was, like, so notable. They wrote a show about it. Yeah. Everyone at our school is a boy in a dress. You know, it, it will just, it, it's something, it, it will eventually become, you know, pickled in amber to mix a metaphor. Mm. But I think I'd like to kind of stop that for as long as possible. I do like writing for teenage voices. And there's a kind of trick about... If you make it too contemporary, if you start saying, I mean, this is now dated reference, but like when, we, when I was first getting on the West End, it's like, that's so extra. I was like, well, I'm not putting that in because that'll be out of date. And now it is. Mm. Um, I had dinner the other night with um, Noah, who is, who's, uh, Noah Thomas, who's the new Jane in the West End, who starts in, uh, on January the 6th next year. And Noah's just 20, and we stole him away from, uh, from drama school before he'd finished. And he was giving me some, some good, like, slang stuff. Um, which I love, but I won't put it in the show because it'll all be dated in a year. So you kind of pick certain phrases like cool. You know, in West Side Story, they say things are cool. That's never gone away. Um, and, but there, there may be references that I want to redo. Yeah. And then other shows, they do do that. I mean, I, I hear, I may be entirely wrong, but someone did once tell me The Lion King has to have a rewrite every few years or else they lose the rights. There's some rights issues. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's an entirely different pressure for us. Yeah. Um, and but I think yeah, if it's a long-running show, you do need to go back and not take it for granted, and keep trying to kind of tweak it and make sure that it's still speaking to a, to a new audience. Great. Um, you kind of mentioned West Side Story there, and I just wanted to end really with just because uh, I'm asking everybody I'm talking to for this episode, uh, any kind of favourite uh, movie musicals that you want to sort of end on? And well, I do love West Side Story. I mean, the music is so extraordinary. Um, although it's a very odd story in that they fall in love because they do. It's not explained. The whole thing takes place over like 24 hours, so it's completely intense and nuts. And within the stage, at least, after the, oh, I can't remember who gets shot, the first death, but they then do this big comedy number. And it's structurally, it's quite, it's quite a, a curious thing. And the music is just so gorgeous, it carries it through, and the lyrics are so fantastic. And obviously the energy of it is, is so timeless, and it is an extraordinary show. Um, I really love Grease as well. I think if, you know, the night's winding down, you've got friends over, and you stick the Grease soundtrack on, everyone gets like their second wind. It's just magic. No matter how cool they think they are, everyone loves Grease. Um, Sweeney Todd kind of blew my mind when I saw it because I didn't know musicals could be so clever, I suppose. Uh, and then the first thing I ever saw was Annie. And I've always loved all the songs from Annie, critically, sorry, uncritically and wholeheartedly because I must have been about five when I heard it. I've no idea if they're good or not because they're just an intrinsic kind of part of my musical life, but I absolutely love them. Um, and then, I don't know, recently, I'm seeing, seeing Dear Evan Hansen next week, I haven't seen that yet. I know people kind of talk about Jamie and Dear Evan Hansen in the same breath, so that'll be interesting. Mm. But there's a lot of awful musicals out there as well, and I won't name and shame anyone, but, um, yeah, there's some very cheesy old clunkers, so I try and stay away from those. Cool. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much for your time. That was really a really fascinating uh, chat about about how to do this thing, which often looks so effortless um, on the on the stage and on the screen. So it should do. It should look effortless because we put all the work in so that you don't have to. Exactly. And I think that's that's the mark of a really great musical.
Great. Well, uh, looking forward to seeing uh, the screen version of Jamie when it lands next year. Yeah. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the first uh, the first cut. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Take care. There's a clock on the wall and it's moving too slow. It's got hours to kill and a lifetime to go. And I'm holding my breath till I hear the last bell. Then I'm coming out hard and I'm giving them hell. It's my pleasure now to be joined by Justine Waddell from Kino Classica. Hello, Justine. Hello, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So when I was sent the list of all the events for the BFI musical season, one in particular really stood out, and it was uh, Kino Classica's Melodia season uh, with Russian musicals. And I was just like, that is not something I thought I would ever see or know about so I'm really pleased that uh, you've agreed to come on the podcast to have a chat about this what sounds like an amazing season. Oh well I'm so grateful because one of the things that we try to do at Kino Classica is uh, raise the level of engagement with the tradition of Soviet filmmaking, um, Eastern European filmmaking because as we all know American European style filmmaking gets so much coverage and yet there's a whole alternative tradition, a whole alternative conversation that was going on in the world about cinema and what cinema could do. Um, and these musicals that we've chosen are, are very much part of that dialogue. Great stuff. So before we get to that, can you just sort of tell us about Kino Classica and when did it start and, and what the work that you do is? So Kino Classica started because uh, I'm an actress and I've been to Russia to play the lead in the film. Um, and during my time in Russia, I learnt Russian and I watched an enormous number of Russian films. Um, I was lucky enough to work at Mosfilm, which is the equivalent of the Warner Brothers studio. So I was really immersed in the whole tradition of uh, great Russian filmmaking. And when I came back from Russia, I thought, oh, it's just so sad that nobody has the access um, and the enjoyment that I had in Russia being able to engage with and understand these films. So I set up Kino Classica to try um, and do something about that. And our remit as a charity is that uh, we support and fundraise for projects that um, engage with the Soviet film tradition. We do screenings, we do exhibitions, we do publications, um, and increasingly we're involved in restoration. Great. So how long, how long have you been doing this? Uh, we've been doing this since 2016. Okay. 2016 was our first big project. We did a two-year Eisenstein program, um, which culminated in a beautiful book on Eisenstein drawings with Thames and Hudson and a, a wonderful screening of Eisenstein's October at the Barbican with the LSO on the centenary of the revolution. Amazing. 
So that's obviously Eisenstein's a well-known proposition, one of the you know the the daddies uh, of of cinema, let alone kind of Russian cinema. Um, Melodia. Sadly, he never made a musical. Well, no. Um, <laughs> although, like you say, kind of, I bet seeing uh, uh, October with a, a live score was something else. Um, but Melodia, looking at the list, is something is a completely different proposition. So, can you sort of give us a little bit of background about that season and you know where you kind of learned about some of those films and how you get hold of them? So, uh, what we try to do is annually we screen a um, a, a program of films. Um, we did a, a season last year, for example, on youth cinema, youth cinema in Soviet Russia, um, and this year in, it was actually in a conversation uh, with with uh, Robin Baker, we um, committed to screening an extraordinary um, Soviet musical called Cossacks of the Kuban, uh, which is set on two collective farms in the Kuban in the 1940s. So once we committed to screening that with the BFI, we then built a bigger program of musicals, eight musicals, um, from Russia, Georgia, and Armenia. Um, and they, they really span... Um, the ambition of the Russian musical tradition, I suppose. So there are great big um, classic uh, Russian musicals like Carnival Night, which is, uh, I mean, just an absolutely beautiful MGM-style musical comedy, um, right up to very contemporary takes on the musical form, like Lieta by Kirill Serebrenikov. Serebrenikov. Mm, amazing. Um, so you sort of mentioned there kind of the... the, the the Russian musical tradition. What is that? You know, because I think that um, <laughs> it's a big question. Um, but so the American musical is such a dominant form, you know, and that's kind of where the the idea of the the kind of the screen musical kind of goes back to, and in terms of thinking. But what is it about? What is it that makes these Soviet musicals different, unique, kind of, and in, in comparison to that, and on their own, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question, um, and I'll be ambitious and try and answer it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would hazard a guess that um, I, I think the way in which uh, the Soviet film tradition and the American film tradition developed along different paths is something um, that really impacts on the way the musical form developed in Russia. So broadly speaking, you could say that American films set out to entertain um, and that Soviet films set out to educate. Um, and I would again broadly say that if you're talking about the all-talking, all-singing, all-dancing American musical, its register is quite emotional. Um, it's normally will-they-won't-they they love story. What's interesting about the Soviet musical tradition and some of the films that we've chosen to show is that they can be very intellectual. They really engage with social issues. So... For example, we have an absolutely beautiful film called Cheremushki, uh, which is based on a Shostakovich operetta. So the score is by Shostakovich, um, and it is directed by Herbert Rappaport, who was um, one of their most famous uh, film directors. Um, and what the film engages with is housing shortages for young people in Moscow in the 1960s. Um, and it's a real... It's an absolutely charming musical, but the social issue behind it is actually very serious. Um, if you go back to a film like Cossacks of the Kuban, uh, that is essentially a film about uh, collective farm ownership and whether the individual is uh, as important as the group. So 
even during the great big Stalinist blockbuster musicals, there were often very serious ideas being discussed or played around with in the heart of the Russian musical. So I think that kind of um, uh, intellectual stroke uh, message, um, stroke propaganda thread, uh, in in uh, in the Russian tradition um, runs quite deeply and, and marks it out as quite different from from the ambition of American musicals. And that's something that is still present in a film like Leto, um, yeah. which is kind of the most recent film. And, and I, what I actually saw, I saw it when it was on it was on Mubi. And 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 those that kind of conflict between the the almost kind of Western glamour excess, which is there aesthetically and in the kind of music that the musicians in Leto are kind of trying to play, is is always in tension with underlying social issues and dilemmas in terms of uh, what is allowed to be done. So it's interesting to see that that's, that's still part of that. that yeah, and yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, that engagement uh, with uh, kind of Western tropes of... Uh, of, of musical music and styles of musical filmmaking um, is, is really quite complex and it can be quite ironic. You know, the references that are made certainly in Lieta to um, uh, Western style rock. Um, and and Serebrennikov, I think, is really clever at referencing um, some of the kind of cliches of Western style rock and putting a very Russian spin on them. And you see that the whole way through uh, there's a, I think there's a real awareness that runs through uh, Russian musical films about about how the Americans are doing them and how the Russian musicals can be different. Um, and certainly also what's interesting is that, of course, when you're talking about Soviet films um, and Soviet musicals in particular, because the music then also becomes uh, local or national, you know, what a Georgian musical sounds like um, and how local that is is very different from how a musical set on the step in the Kuban sounds, um, and how that engages with um, the local the local tradition of music and 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 visual visually as well. Yeah, great. Um, so the I, I've only seen uh, I've only seen the one film, but the the one that kind of struck out to me, which I thought I must see just from the title, is called uh, "We Are from Jazz." Um, which I just thought, what a great title. Um, and I'm already imagining the T-shirt. Um, but I wondered if, you know, if you had any kind of personal favourites, you know, you sort of like leapt up there as if that was one. But um, uh, yeah, have you got any personal favourites from the season that you really want to kind of highlight? Oh, God, I have to say it's like children. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love them all. Um, I'll talk about We Are From Jazz because it's just, uh, it's charming, irreverent, deeply, deeply... Uh, kind of, it has a, it has a real biting humor, um, and there's a tradition of Russian comedy that does biting humor very very well, and We Are From Jazz really does that. Um, it, it, it's the story um, of the individual pitted against society and what society can throw at him to try and make him to conform. Um, so essentially, jazz music was based, was banned in 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 Soviet Russia um, because it was seen as an American art form, and this young man. Uh, in the 1920s is determined to bring it at whatever cost um, to uh, the uh, 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 the people of Russia and it's a it's a very funny um, uh, what's the word when uh, it's a it, 
um, it's it's almost like a road trip. <laughs> um, it's it, it's a it's a very funny kind of jazz road trip of a movie, um, and, and a real favorite of mine. Yeah, that sounds um, right up my street. Uh, yeah, I mean the other one that that I think is absolutely stunning is Cherry Mushki, uh, with the music by Shostakovich and the visuals by and direction by Herbert Rappaport. It's also just another. It's a, it's a kind of a, a bath bubble of a film. It's, it's absolutely beautiful to look at with the most wonderful music um, and this kind of serious message underneath. Great. Well, I am excited to see some of this stuff. So uh, where, can, where can we see it? When is it touring and whereabouts? Thank you for asking that question, <laughs> because I always forget to say the most important bit. Um, so uh, the main season is at the Institut Francaise at the Cine Lumière in South Kensington. We also have uh, wonderful screenings at the Bristol Watershed through January, uh, also at Broad- uh, Nottingham Broadway and the Ultimate Picture Palace in Oxford. So um, I do hope that your listeners can uh, come along and enjoy one or two of these rarely, if ever, screen musicals uh, in the UK. Great stuff. Yeah, well, I know that we've got listeners in, in those places. Um, and uh, yeah, I think they'll be they'll be excited to go and see it, um, see that season when it, uh, when it kind of rolls out. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this season, um, which is amazing. And yeah, like I sort of said at the start, just amazing to, to, to know that there is this kind of wealth of, of history because I think as well, Soviet cinema is like a lot of national cinemas kind of pigeonholed, you know, in terms of how we understand it in the West um, or in kind of, you know, sort of Anglophile kind of context, which is, you know, Soviet cinema is one thing, you know. So to know that there are these films out there which might be an engagement with that, but are also just kind of amazingly kind of cinematic celebrations of music and, and kind of life is, is really exciting. So thank you for the season and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Я иду его искать, ага, может, лето. Сегодня все ищем блен совета. Там будет то и будет это. А не сходить ли мне туда да 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 Лето, всех хулиганы пригостета. У них, наверное, вендетта. Впрочем, это ерунда, да-да-да-да-да-да-да Лето, штаны истерты, как монета Во рту дымится сигарета Иду купаться подаем Ага, лето Недавно я услышал где-то Что скоро прилетит комета Тогда мы все умрем, умрем Лето Лето Лето
thanks again to all of our contributors for their brilliant insight and uh, yeah lots of lots of stuff to chew on there dario what did you make of those chats wow well i don't where to start really it's just some uh, really interesting discussions and sort of analysis of of how to sort of place musicals and what to like about musicals and how they're received and i mean it's from the very beginning it's, it's a difficult question really in terms of what is the musical because you know there's certain things that you've mentioned and you mentioned it on the notes and you mentioned it there when you were talking to pam you know the idea of sort of punch drunk love as a musical is and, and but then i was thinking about magnolia because there's that there's that sequence right in the middle of where they're all singing a, a song that so it's it's really interesting how one sort of sets out in your mind, oh, this we categorize as a musical. And I was trying to think about a way of doing it and for my own sort of sense of approaching the subject. And I always tend to think, I think of, of musicals as about the way that the music, the musical numbers are set up in relationship to the, the, the filmic world, let's say. I mean, maybe not even the narrative, but more... The idea that there is a non-diegetic use of music within the filmic world itself. It's quite complicated because obviously non-diegetic music is used in lots of genres, melodrama, in all, you know, basically all films, where it's added on top and that adds that layer of emotional amplification or shaping, whatever you want to call it. But then when a character or characters in a film take on a non-diegetic performance that kind of sits, like you said, sort of in, in in and of itself. And sometimes that can be taken out as almost a music video or a, an excerpt in and of itself. But then does that, if that's the definition, then that means that films like A Star Is Born or films that actually have the music as diegetic within, you know, the structure of the film itself are not musical. So it's, it becomes very complicated when you're trying to sort of uh, fathom a, a, a technical sense. And... You, when you're trying to lay down the boundaries, you know, of this sits in the musical genre and this this doesn't. I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting that kind of relates to that is the way that Pam Hutchinson talked a little bit about sort of musicals of pure cinema. And I think it's really interesting because it, it doesn't conform to, you know, the ways that you, or the ways that often pure cinema is related to experimental films or films that try to set up a... Uh, a relationship to the cinematic only and not and no other kind of media or no other kind of uh, artistic form let's say because i mean it's interesting to see whether musicals are are filmic music musicals ever able to disassociate themselves from the thea theatrical grounding do you know what i mean i mean it's a difficult question and then you know that that it, it leads into the way that we we watch musicals the way that, that filmmaking is ingrained as, in terms of its relationship to realism and how that has increased over time made, made it more difficult for us to kind of accept musicals in that in that much more in that sense that it's more difficult to suspend our disbelief you know what i mean that they don't we don't we don't see people sort of walking down the street and suddenly bur bursting into song when they've got when they want to affect their emotional states as it were so you have to kind of take musicals on its own terms. You know, you can't... If if you say that... If, if you don't like the way that musicals are kind of structured or set up in terms of that, that they have these musical numbers that are outside of the realistic framework of the movie, if you say that you don't like that to begin with as, as a structure, then you're just not going to like musicals. 
but again, it's like if if that happens within the within the sort of realist structure of the narrative, say in a concert film, you know what I mean, or a film that's based on a musical star doing their performances within the the, the time and space of the film, then is that acceptable? So, and you know, I was thinking about it in relationship to my own feeling about the genre, and I think I de I definitely am handicapped by that. Let's say in terms of preferring the musicals that do have that within the boundaries of of a of a of sort of a more realist element of the film world yeah i think that's very common with with you know thinking about contemporary musicals or musical or films that utilize musical kind of motifs or, or conventions you know where the films are sold on the the premise that the people singing the songs are performers so a star is born la la land and then even something like her smell which has a lot of you know kind of moments where it's doing that thing of which which is the the characters are communicating particularly her character towards the end she's communicating through song because she can't communicate any other way but she's a performer so we kind of get that and then even in in marriage story where adam driver does the sondheim mm. uh song you know he's a theatrical person you know so there's, so there's a lot of i think and i think that is something that you know comes up again and again is that kind of you need some kind of acknowledgement of the theatricality of it yep. now you know i think that it definitely feels harder to which is why i think the greatest showman stands out i still haven't seen it but it feels like it stands out because it's kind of almost unashamed it is theatrical in the sense that it's the circus but you know there's an unashamedness about the yeah, musicality yeah, yeah, yeah. of it in a way that feels more old-fashioned i guess um so isn't it what you were saying there about that kind of that theatrical grounding then i always think of like west side story which i know is one of your favorite because that feels completely yeah. you know it's a film that is not interested in theatrical staging it's purely interested in yeah, the cinematic yeah, yeah, yeah. possibilities of and it's, it's it feels like such a high watermark for what you're saying there which is yeah, yeah those the moment where it feels like it's a cinematic thing as opposed to something which is a cinematic variation on a on a stage thing but but i do agree that, that there I, I agree with you that there is that tension there in terms of the source material but i think it's a i think it's a tension that's always in adaptation as well and you know that, that's kind of unacknowledged is that there is that well probably is acknowledged a lot of, you know mm. but that that sense of we know we're watching something which has a previous life in a in a particular context and for something like the musical which we know is has been on stage is uh is kind of very very specific to a, a kind of a, a format uh which i think is interesting yeah yeah i mean it's it, it's so unusual to see i mean I, it was funny because i was thinking about the beginning of indiana jones and the temple of doom where there's that busley berkeley homage mm. which is kind of like completely and utterly sort of seems seems just kind of plonked on at the beginning beginning because spielberg just fancied doing it do you know what i mean it, it doesn't seem to have any reference point at all to to the to the film you know apart from obviously that there's the kate capshaw character is doing her musical number at, at, at the beginning yeah and i was thinking also of, of, of a film like frank which is so, such a good movie in terms of the, the, and, and, and sort of reminds me a little bit of her smell where, it, you know, the, the ability of producing a, a believable musical group in, you know, in, particularly in genres like punk or avant-garde. It's very, very difficult to get that to a sense where you believe it as an audience. And, you know, I think it, it does happen in both of those mm. in both of those films. And just on, on sort of what Pam was saying in terms of the the, the baggage of the musical being, a, a you know, ostensibly perhaps traditionally seen as a woman's genre or a, you know, a, a feminized genre, let, let's say. And I was just thinking about that where, where 
is that diff- is that impossible to disavow? You know what I mean? So even in even in the fact that we might critique it, then if if the fact that that more women would watch those genres and more men would watch other genres is is just a fact of the demo, the demographics of of the people who watch it. How do we how, how should we approach that from a sort of critical? I don't mean like you know it's wrong perspective, but what does that actually mean? Does it mean that there is something inherent to genres that that reflect to that are tied somehow sociologically to the expectations of what you know we're ostensibly saying a heterosexual culture is about? Do you know what I mean? To me, that's nothing that's there's anything wrong with the genre per se. Maybe it's to do with our expectations as to what you know we like as men or women and stuff like that, mm. but also how society functions to to channel what that is. And I think it becomes almost like a sociological question rather than a film studies question in a way. But you know, it's and 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 I think it's really problematic just to, to talk about it in, ge- in gender terms. I think you can talk about it in in so many d- different types of identity politics ways i think you know what i mean whether it's sexuality or race or these kinds of things which is a you know i mean again that's something that i need to you know i'd need to spend a lot more time kind of thinking about yeah i hope you're not you know hope you're not hoping i answer that question no no don't know but it's interesting what you're saying there about what's acceptable you know in that in that kind of because when you're talking about spielberg utilizing a lot of the tropes and conventions in indiana jones it kind of part of it could be read as making it acceptable to a male audience, you know, yeah, in terms maybe. of the director and the context, you know, and I yeah, think, that's a good I, th- point. I think, I think that that is something that is, that is part of maybe an, an, an implicit kind of understanding of, of the musical genre, you know, that mm. the context in which it's done and who does it makes it acceptable, which I, you know, is a probably a, a thesis that a lot of people will shout at, but I, 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 I would argue that further research would, would kind of reveal a lot of those instances, you know, where which I think is not just the case with musicals, but that's that's just the yeah, example yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're we're using here, you know. Yeah, and I, I think one of the other things that I think is an interesting question is why why musicals in that kind of more classical sense are not popular. I mean, obviously, sort of um, the Greatest Showman is a great example of that, and you know, just to put the sort of snobbery around it to one side, and I haven't seen it either, and I probably won't because. You know, I, I kind of have that. You have to hold your hands up and say, "No, this is probably not for me." But, but yeah, I'll go back to West Side Story, and I think maybe again it's something to do with the fact that those talents, those all-round entertainment talents, are not there in the same way that they used to be. And I know we had this sort of discussion a little bit about La La Land when, I mean, let's let's be honest, um, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are not Rita Moreno and George Shakiris. You know what I mean? And maybe that's why The Greatest Showman does well, because it's got um, Hugh Jackman in, who is an all-round. He has got that kind of background. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering whether that's, you know, an interesting point that the sort of... I don't want to say that the quality is not there, because probably in musical theatre, the quality is still there. You know what I mean? Great performers are still there. But that ability to cross over into into sort of mainstream cinema is is... The pathway isn't there anymore, maybe. Yeah, and we we have mentioned that before. As you know, I think when we did the Chazelle, maybe the Chazelle bonus, wasn't it? Yeah, you know this, and and kind of brought it up there. This idea of the the kind of the classic triple threat. You know, um, I rewatched Top Hat because it was on iPlayer recently. You know, and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and you're just like, who can do that now? You know, dance, sing, can have mm. that screen presence, sell an emotional scene to the same degree. It's really, it's really quite rare, and I think that. Yeah, that's what we're interesting about kind of Tom McRae's adaptation of his own musical is because 
it'll be bringing people from the stage to the screen in that way that West Side Story did, you know, like kind of, you know, performers from a different space into a new space. Um, and I think that's what Spielberg's doing with his remake as well. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, wh- where the those kind of acting, dancing, singing performers are are very much in demand because you look at the amount of musicals being made out of old of Hollywood film straight drama property or comedy property you know um and they are there are loads of them you know so that there's obviously there's obviously still people who do that mm. but yeah that I think you're right about that trajectory is not one from film you know and a lot of those performers Fred Astaire Gene Kelly had kind of backgrounds in other things but they hit at the right time to be you know mm. to, to kind of t- to, to sell that to yeah, sell yeah, that yeah. uh screen persona but also maybe as well it's we're just being myopic and this is about the the fracturing of of mainstream film. Yeah, true. You know, since since the nineteen seventies. So, because you could look at you could high, high, look at High School Musical. Look at the is it stepping up or stepping out? Maybe those yeah, step films? out, step up. Yeah, step whatever they could. All step of those, in. yeah. And then you know you've got you've got something like Glee, which was absolutely massive a few years ago, and it's kind of like you know we're saying that this genre is there, and it, and, and maybe it is there, and we're just. You know, old white men who are who are yeah, that's true. Yeah. Who, who are watching our certain kind of films and are not in that particular canal, let's say, or stream of of consciousness when it comes to where musicals are now. Maybe they are there just as much as they were before, but you know, we have this sort of this sort of fracturing of of where our where we think our particular interests lie, and we mm. don't tend to cross to cut across as much. Yeah, no, I think that's valid, and I think you know that that is a reason why episodes like this are always interesting aren't they you know because you do get to think about things that you just don't consider on a daily basis like you say i don't i've thought about the greatest showman more in the last two months than i ever did you know (laughs) um and that's nice in the sense of yeah like what what does it mean where does it sit um it kind of expands our minds and 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 stops us from being you know myopic which i think is really important yeah well done for picking up that because i normally pick up those kind of mainstream stuff that neither of us watched so that's good yeah i think and i think i think you're absolutely right i think it's a case of we are thinking about this in a very very particular context which is why also talking to justine was was fascinating because it's like i would never have considered there was this whole soviet genre you know and you just oh, yeah, it, no, it's you know so fascinating. it's it's exciting to kind of have your preconceptions shifted in terms of how you so yeah that's yeah. that's a good point yeah there's probably a whole load of you know young performers and teen performers that um, from those shows who've who who do exactly what we're saying can't be found yeah true yeah you know and and, and maybe like e- even sort of pulling it out widely all these sort of entertainment shows that you see on television now you know right through from Strictly Come Dancing to you know these ones where the, 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 they have performances and live performances that, that do hark back to this sort of synchronised dancing and mm. singing you know what I mean to showcase and and again a lot of it is is sort of amateur let's say for, for want of a better word it's people just trying out for these these competitions but that's where that the the sort of foundation of yeah. that genre lies the these days and then there's someone like beyonce as well you know who's kind of who's probably been underserved in, on screen but i would have no doubt would be capable of doing something you know and there's probably a film that i'm forgetting where she is you know a serious yeah. actress yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. but you know have no doubt that she could do exactly what we're saying there you know um and her particularly Lemonade is a really kind of fascinating film uh, released this year. You know, the the, mm. the the film that she did for her album, um, you know, which has a lot of cinematic 
you know kind of references and tropes in uh and yeah she's an incredible performer so yeah well done for yeah mm. kind of opening the minds but yeah you were saying about the soviet stuff no no i just think it, it it's fascinating how that seemed to one of the things that was talked about there was the the, the crossing that and entertainment versus education boundary do you know what i mean and that and it spoke spoke a little bit to what you were saying at, 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 in the earlier interview with pam about the idea of of sort of musicals being pure escapism and you know pure entertainment and i think it's interesting because i i i think that that is true but i also i think you can find as you were saying you can find the complexity there um and like for example i was watching a, a chorus line again recently and that whole setup is around you know it's very meta it's about it's a sort of job interview which we can all kind of like we all understand that feeling of wanting something so badly and and am i good enough and then sort of that the all of your all of your anxieties and your sort of regrets about your past and building you up to this point and maybe the getting this job and getting this role in this musical will get, will validate everything that that's happened beforehand and i think those are quite it's you know it is it is quite complex and i think just the the fact of the singing and dancing you know does tend to undercut that ability sometimes i think to go into the more complex areas but yeah i'm really i haven't seen any of this you know these russian films so it'll just be amazing to sort of pop along and see what they're what they're like i think there's a friend of mine who uh, came a long way to be here and she wrote a great song and i just like her singing i think it's pretty fucking beautiful Listen, we're gonna sing that song, all right? I did an arrangement, it was kind of not so great, but uh, maybe no, you can I just stick with it. Yeah, here, come on, here we go. Just don't All you gotta do is trust me. That's all you gotta do. I'm gonna sing it either way, so. Tired trying to fill that void 
So is any other any others that you wanted to mention that would be on your kind of musicals go-to list? Yeah, I think so. I definitely want to give a shout out to the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, which <laughs> uh, was a film that I loved for a number of years because my brother it's my brother's favourite film, which is weird. But if you know my brother, um, that's his favourite <laughs> film. Like, it's super weird that that's his favourite film, but he absolutely loves it. So I kind of always enjoyed watching it with him. And then and the constant presence of it just made me realise just how how good those songs are, how amazing Tim Curry's performance is and how everyone's amazing in it, you know, and just what a, what a delightfully subversive film it is. Um, and I absolutely adore it now. Some of the big hitters, Singing in the Rain, which I rewatched recently, I love. Mm. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis, one of my favourite Christmas films. I've been hammering Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which is another great example, I think, of the, the kind of film where there's so much relatability in it on a human level. You know, like we've all have those kind of family moments or we have those kind of big life moments where everything kind of gets upheaved you know we feel that the underlying human and social drama that kind of underpins it which i just think is a beautiful film um and then i want to give a shout out because i kind of mentioned it to pam but she she didn't take me up on it as much as i hoped which was a little bit of elvis um i've been hammering king creole which is directed by michael michael curtis which people kind of forget and it's beautifully black and shot black and white and Elvis does some real acting in it and it's the film where you kind of get a sense of you know <laughs> what he would have been capable of if he'd have been given kind of more serious stuff rather than just the wow. the throwaway stuff he was given it's a really <laughs> smart movie um with some great songs his his rendition of crawfish um is just yeah it's just you just another example we just like this this guy is utterly unique um it's a it's a really really great movie so definitely 
definitely recommend that. That was a film again that Justin introduced me to that because I kept sort of, you know, I, I I was that flippant like Elvis never made any good movies. It was all throwaway stuff, and he was like, "No, you've got to see King Creole," and he was sort of badgering me for years. And then I watched it, and I was like, well, "Actually, this is a really, really good movie." Um, so yeah, definitely recommending getting past any kind of Elvis is a bad actor prejudice, and uh, he's uh, he's great in that. It was interesting because I said I was going to watch a star, mm. the newer Star Is Born for this. Um, and I tried to find it, but you can't rent it anywhere online, which is weird. And I was like, oh, I you know, I'm sure it'll be good, but do I want to pay, you know, nine pound for a digital copy? Uh, probably yeah. not. Um, so I was looking for something to kind of to watch. And then uh, Unfermet Femme, the Goddard with Anna Karina popped up on Mubi. And uh, and then very sadly, she passed away right. pretty much the same day or the day after that it popped up. So kind of I managed to kind of combine a kind of tribute to her with a rewatch of that film and that is a film that is i mean it's just a delight isn't it it's just it's yeah it's, it's yeah because you watched it as well didn't you? she's just luminous she is you know and you know it kind of goes right back to that stuff we were saying at the beginning about when it's in dialogue with musicals and it's using and the the michelle legrand yeah, score yeah, yeah. is is brilliant and it's all over the place because sometimes it's sometimes she's singing most of the time it's kind of underscoring and then it's kind of doing this weird sound effect punctuation orchestration there's just so much going on it's an absolute delight and the colors the eastman color is astonishing everyone looks amazing yeah, and it's yeah, just yeah, got that amazing. flow of the classic musical yeah. where you're just yeah. spending time with these three beautiful people yeah. you know it feels like that kind of gene kelly kind of on the town vibe it's just we're just bumming around talking about life and kind of working it all out it's yeah, an absolute yeah. joy you watched it as well you rewatched it as well yeah, it's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I think it was one of those films that I didn't really appreciate it the first time around because I've seen most of the sort of early to mid... Well, I think I've seen all of the early to mid Goddards and stuff. But the, but this is just so, you know, in touch with what what the musical is as a genre and and, and gives it that French spin, mm. I think, as well. Do you know what I mean? It's not... it it's It's very much aware of the sort of playing around with that that particular cultural element of the musical, I think, you know, going back to the, the Paris and the Can Can Girls and all of that kind of stuff and the different, the, the different sort of social context that that comes from. And, and, and just sort of all of the direct address to cameras and the way that the music is taken out of the numbers and it's just a cappella. You know what I mean? Just, just, you know, Goddard doing, doing all of that. It's just, it's just great. And yeah. And you, but it, made, it did make me wonder as well, you know, like what, what the impact of that film is because it's like, you know what 61 and it's mm. very ironic meta kind yeah. of aware like you say it's frenchness is is kind of almost knowing that it can't be a traditional american hollywood musical so it, by kind of introducing that distance and that irony it then starts i don't know if it starts off the very meta mm. kind of awareness and self-awareness of the musical genre but it'd be interesting to know you know the impact it had there where you you know the uh, you know kind of highlighting the artifice is something that is very common in musicals latterly so mm. interesting to know that but yeah and and that was you know anna karina's first film with goddard and she's absolutely astonishing in it you yeah, know? yeah yeah she's yeah. just yeah. like to see a, a kind of an actress take no messing with that level of confidence that early in the career is just it's just spellbinding um and again kind of reminder of just the musical or kind of musical adjacent kind of power to give space to female performers um, with range and her range is, as a comedian and and kind of straight actress is is just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I c c can't really add add to that. I yeah, agree with all of that. Um, 
Yeah, just a, a, as you mentioned earlier, I think West Side Story is my sort of high watermark in terms of just everything about it. It's is is just perfect. It's just a, an incredible piece of like I don't want to say sort of. Um, It's, it's an incredible piece of craft from the filmmaking to the performances. There's not there's nothing about that that you think, ah, there's the weak link there. And you're you, you just sort of the like, I just remember sort of seeing George Shakiris and, and, and just thinking, my God, you know, that that is a guy with charisma. Do you know what I mean? And star, star quality, you know, for the mm. first time. And um, I just related maybe a little bit to um, Unfemis Unfemis. Um, I really like Bob. Bob um, the Bob Fosse film, all that jazz, you know what I mean? Because I like the way that that plays around with it. I really want to get around to watching the TV series because there's the, it's obviously yeah 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 Fosse Verdon. Yeah. I think I might try and, and and have a look at that. Um, but I love I love the uh, the presence of sort of Roy Schneider in in all that jazz as a sort of parallel to uh, Michael Douglas in. Um, in a chorus line, do you know what I mean? Who are these very straight actors who are yeah. supposed to be these great creative choreographers? And, and in some ways, it's kind of miscasting that goes right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah, of, yeah. You just never would have yeah, thought yeah. of it. Yeah, you yeah. think to yourself, really? Michael Douglas used to be a dancer and now he's a choreographer. He's like, but it, it's, for some reason, it, it works. And, mm. and the, again, the sort of quality of the um, of the performances and that that, that sort of those people have trained all their lives and it's really interesting there's a couple of of the actors in in a chorus line who who mysteriously disappear during the the actual numbers because clearly they're not performers they're just mm. there because they 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 look right for that role but whenever the new musical number happens they kind of mysteriously disappear and it's really interesting how that how that happens and they've sort of got to shape the 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 editing around that but yeah i think i think that those those sort of Movies that go behind the scenes, I always find quite quite interesting. I think good choices, good choices. So yeah, that pretty much wraps us up for the first of our BFI musicals two-parter. Thanks to all of our contributors for their time and input. Uh, some really great conversations had over the last couple of months. So thank you very much. Thanks to thanks to Annabelle Grundy at the BFI National Seasons for her support. Uh, thanks to you, Dario, for your contribution. Lovely to hear that you have some musicals in there. In that uh, that steely persona is not uh, completely <laughs> impenetrable when it comes to some uh, some musical entertainment. Hey man, I'm in, I'm in touch with my musical side. Great to hear. Uh, we'll be back uh, very soon uh, with our funny girl episode. But uh, and you can find us in the meantime on all the usual social channels. And uh, yeah, we'll be back very soon. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you again on the Cinematologist podcast. <laughs> told us where we stand and Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear Claude Rains was the invisible man then something went wrong for Fay Ray and King Kong they got caught in a cellular jam then at a deadly pace it came from space and this is how the message ran science fiction
Double feature. 